Hey everyone, welcome back to Hero Hero Go Show, podcast all about Asian horror. And uh, it's been a little bit, uh, you know, the, the show releases tend to be a bit irregular. Um, that is partly my fault and, and partly just due to the nature of the show and, and doing a couple of movies and assembling and yada yada. But uh, we are back again. Thank you very much for uh, your patience. And uh, as a small reward, uh, I ask you to uh, potentially visit uh, the Legion Podcasts uh, merch page. You can uh, you can find the link right there on legionpodcasts.com, um, where we have our first Hero Hero Go Show shirt there uh, in honor of Richard Glenn Schmidt and myself uh, examining the Tomie films. There is a That's So Tomie t-shirt available uh, right now for you. So if you're interested in such a thing, uh, go... You know, check it out. Pick what, pick one up. Uh, we really appreciate it. It certainly goes towards helping uh, support this show and others here on LegionPodcast.com. So um, enough uh, lollygagging. We're not going to spend too much time chit-chatting up front. we got a lot of show to get to. Uh, we have Court Psyops joining us for another G-Spot. This time we're talking about Mothra versus Godzilla. We've got Duncan McLeish here to talk about the movie Thirst. And uh, before we get into that, let's let's talk about that uh, that film for a second. Tonight's show is the first appearance of one of the driving forces in Asian cinema. Uh, Chan Wu Park, who we will discuss much more fully in a bit, has been sorely missed on this show. And while I considered Old Boy as an introduction to his catalog, tonight's film made far more sense. Not only does it have a more purely horror-inspired story. It's also one of his most interesting films. Originally, I was going to talk all about Chanwick Park and our more information segment, but instead, let's do that right now. The movie you know from Park, if you know nothing else, is Old Boy. While not his first feature, everyone remembers that scene in the hallway with the hammer and the reveal at the end, which I will not spoil here. If you haven't seen Old Boy, you absolutely should. His first big feature was an action drama called Joint Security Area, following on the heels of The Moon is the Sun's Dream and Saminjo. But it was Joint Security Area that put Park on the map. In fact, Quentin Tarantino himself lobbied for the film to get the Palme d'Or from Cannes that year, but was beat out by support for documentarian Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. Joint Security Area references the area between North and South Korea, commonly known as the DMZ or Demilitarized Zone. It's a tense and tragic story that you should check out if you have any interest in the human cost of Korea's split. And in light of recent events, it's an even more fascinating film because it captures a period of time that, fingers crossed, is going away. All right, so from here, Park went on to direct his famous, or possibly infamous, Vengeance Trilogy, beginning with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance in 2002, Old Boy in 2003, and Lady Vengeance in 2005. All of them are savage, haunting films worth your time, but Old Boy became an iconic scene of Asian cinema. One of these days, we'll get around to that one, I promise. But it's the work that followed this acclaimed and remarkably bloody series that excites me. 
We'll talk about Thirst in a minute, but I would also point you to the phenomenal Stoker, his first English-speaking feature, which features amazing performances by Nicole Kidman, Mia Wasikowska, and Matthew Good. In many ways, it feels like a natural extension of Thirst, dealing with issues of repressed sexuality and the evil that we are capable of, if not attracted to. After that, the outstanding film The Handmaiden, which is a see-it-to-appreciate-it kind of movie involving a discreet lesbian relationship and lots of murder and double-dealing. Speaking of all these subterranean and subconscious desires, let's end this introduction to Mr. Park with a quote from the man himself. I like telling big stories, he says, through small, artificially created worlds. He's a student of philosophy in college who ranks Shakespeare and Sophocles among his influences. Park has married the high-minded with the grotesque, and the result, ladies and gentlemen, is our film tonight, Thirst. But first, it's time to take a quick trip with Court's IOPS to the G-Spot. Hey everyone, welcome back to the G-Spot. It's Bo here with Court. What's up, Bo? Not much, Court. We've got on deck today another real battle royale. Uh, this time it is Mothra versus Godzilla, aka Godzilla versus the Thing, from 1964, directed by OG Godzilla director himself, Ashiro Honda, and written by Shinichi Sekizawa. Uh, this is the first appearance in the Godzilla line of films uh, in, featuring Mothra, who is essentially, of course, a giant moth. Um, there was a, a standalone movie, though. There was a movie called Mothra, which we have not discussed, Court, but I feel like it's worth noting Mothra had her own film. She is a lady. Treat her as such. She has her own movie, and then uh, Godzilla decides he's going to pick a fight with Tokyo, and who's there to defend but Mothra? It's not very uh, gentlemanly of Godzilla to pick on such a lovely lady, but... This is our monster, and he's who we're going to be with here. Let's not forget, all this begins, Court, with an egg. After uh, after a typhoon, uh, we, we have some, some folks discovering a giant glowing egg that also happens to be super radioactive, and it is immediately uh, jumped upon and purchased by uh, an entrepreneur of a company called Happy Enterprises, a fellow named Kumiyama. And uh, buys this egg from a bunch of local villagers. And instead of letting the scientists study the egg, our pal Kumiyama wants to turn it into a tourist attraction court. Sort of a, an egg land, if you will. And he bought it at wholesale prices based upon the weight of a normal extra large egg from a chicken. Seems a li- business work. <laughs> I swear, I don't think it's enough. Considering the size of the egg and what is bound to come out of it, What's the best case scenario for this investment? A giant chicken? Is that what he's expecting? And clearly, they have no idea what's going to come out of it. It just seems like a lot of speculation that goes nowhere. Well, the radioactivity alone could probably be used to generate power whenever the shell is finally discarded, so it could still be a savvy investment. Is it a risk? Absolutely, but it may pay off in the long term. 
Perhaps so, Court. But before uh, we we can even talk about what is inside the egg, we got to deal with two lovely ladies known as the Shobijin, who are uh, tiny twin girls, uh, and and uh, they sort of what uh, they're sort of Mothra translators, Mothra devotees, little not, li- little tiny uh, Japanese people that like Mothra a lot. Not sure what exactly these two lovely little ladies do, but it's a big job for such tiny individuals. No doubt. That's why there's two of them, Court. Fair enough, Bo. <laughs> so, the, uh, it turns out when the, the Shobijin uh, go to meet with Kumiyama and a guy named uh, Jiro Torahata, who is the head of Happy Enterprises, when they get confronted by the Shobijin, who say, hey, you need to lay off this egg, motherfuckers, in so many words. Uh, the, uh, they just, uh, the, these fellas for, uh, happy, I want to say happy toys. That's clearly not right. Happy enterprises. Um, they, uh, they try to, to take the Shobijin. They try to capture him. But instead the Shobijin escape and they meet up with kind of our three heroes, uh, Nakanishi, Professor Miura, and Sakai. And the Shobijin then tell these three individuals, hey, you know that egg what got bought from the Islanders? It turns out that egg belongs to Mothra. And if the egg hatches, the larvae inside, were they don't mean to hurt anybody, but they are going to fuck shit up. It's apparent that whenever you're born, you're immediately hungry, particularly if you're a larva. So therefore, they're going to go looking for food. And what's the nearest source of food but Tokyo? That's just science, Court. Good old-fashioned natural sciences. Uh, so we, we've we got to uh, deal with these eggs. The, the Our trio of uh, Sakai, Nakanishi, and Miura uh, are, in, are in for the long haul. They want to help uh, the, the sh- uh, Shobijin get the egg back and return it to the village. So they go to Kumiyama and Torahata, but uh, the the Happy Enterprises people give them the old middle finger, Corp. <laughs> we are not giving you back this egg. You don't walk away from a radioactive investment, Bo. Returning the egg is not an option for them. Nope. I, I, I would be stunned if they kept the receipt, Corp. So the Shobijin fuck off deciding that these people aren't worth saving. And uh, meanwhile, our three heroes return to Kurata Beach to determine if there is any more radioactive contamination. And knowing for sure at this point, well, it ain't Mothra, it ain't Mothra's egg. What's the source of this uh, unknown radiation? Well, Court, uh, you and I both know at this point, there is only one true source for good old-fashioned unexplained radiation in Japan. And that's a Godzilla. You are correct, Bo. Often it's a kaiju, but more often than not, it is in fact a Godzilla. He's got his own unique signature, and what he's doing underneath the sand when the last time we saw him, he was crashed into the ocean, that's anybody's guess. Well, apparently he got caught up in this hurricane or typhoon, but uh, he has been washed up on the island, is generating this radiation, and uh, just apparently by looking for him, that will wake Godzilla up in a heartbeat. So, After his humiliating loss to King Kong, you can certainly say he has been washed up for a while. Oh, that's rough business there, Court, but not unfair. He has not uh, he has not been at fighting shape, I would argue, since raids again. 
Uh, he's been taking it. Although, in fairness, the King Kong battle, I, I find that there's a little bit of uh, tar on the ball uh, with, with the electrical King Kong. I, I still feel like that's a bit of a cheat, but it is allowed within the, the bounds of kaiju fighting. Uh, so, therefore, I have to adhere to it, even if my own personal belief is that Godzilla, left to his own devices, would have won that battle. Just because it's sanctioned and a part of the rules doesn't make it right, Bo. Ah, truer words, Court. So, Godzilla emerges from his his sandpit and begins to attack Nagoya. And uh, Sakai and Miura and uh, another guy named Junko travel to Infant Island, uh, is the name of this joint, to request that the Shobijin send Mothra to defeat Godzilla, who is currently fucking up Japan. While he may be reeling from his loss from King Kong, Godzilla's back to his term fighting weight and looking more grotesque and angry than he ever has. So, perhaps, something has driven him from this loss to get back to his fighting weight, Bo. Uh, probably worth pointing out, Court, we're looking at a newly designed Godzilla in this film. Uh, the, the suit was fashioned with the help of the actor inside to make it more lightweight, more flexible, give him more emotion... That's going to give him some edge in tonight's battle. Now that uh, we have Godzilla loose in Tokyo, and we are desperately trying to get Mothra to get off her lazy ass and get to work. Also notice he's using a lot more atomic breath, foe. He's been charged up by all that hate. Oh, you can tell that he is feeling the slight from the last battle. And, And it's easy pickings. He's just knocking over some buildings, frying some tanks. It's nothing Godzilla hasn't done a million times before, but these are the confidence builders, Court. These are the things that get you back on top. And these tanks were definitely constructed better, Bo. They take a lot longer to melt, but Godzilla's there making sure he does it. Godzilla is is leaving no quarter with his atomic breath, and it's some of the best use of atomic breath in any of the films we've discussed so far. The natives of the island, though, uh, Court, uh, finally do get convinced to help our, our heroes. However, the Shobijin warn that Mothra is already near death by natural causes, and should Mothra leave this island, is almost certain never to return. Seems kind of hippie to me, Bo. Not sure I can get behind the people of this island. I, I feel like their connection with Mothra is strangely sexual. I have no proof to back that up. I just think it's true. If that's the case, that's really disgusting. <laughs> disgusting indeed, Court. Well, we cut back to Japan now that we have uh, somehow managed to convince Mothra to get about the business of actually being a giant moth. Uh, but we, we go back to uh, Kumiyama and uh, Torahada, our friends from Happy Enterprises, and Kumiyama demands that he receive his money uh, that, that Torahata had swindled from him because these are evil business people, uh, Court. If, if this film is about nothing, it's about uh, how, how corporations can, uh, can, can Shanghai a natural wonder and pervert it to their own ends. Is that not what corporations are for, Bo? I don't know. I, I only see people, Court. I don't see corporations. Komiyama is shot by Torahata, but uh, his his success, his uh, his victory is short-lived because Godzilla is in the neighborhood, and if there is a random villain doing villainous shit, you can be sure that Godzilla is going to find his way there. 
It's almost like evil begots evil. Very, very astute, Cord. It's almost as if Godzilla were some sort of force of nature, perhaps, sent to correct the, the ills of man. In more than one case, he has been, Bo, and he will be again. Oh, boy, we'll get to that champion series soon enough here, Cord. Uh, Godzilla shows up. He uh, he kills Torahada, not intentionally. He just happens to be wrecking a lot of other shit, and Torahada gets caught in the middle. And then Mothra arrives just when Godzilla is rolling up on Mothra's egg. And Mothra is in no mood to have Godzilla scramble a Mothra egg. You think Mothra might be close to death by natural causes by giving birth to an egg nearly twice her size? I assume that she did it from the proboscis. That is how, how Mothras lay eggs. And I assume that it was painful and probably the source of the typhoon. Mothra uh, starts spraying Godzilla with uh, some poisonous powder that Mothra has in tow. And it at first it seems like it might work, but no, no, Court. Godzilla isn't going to be taken down just with a little toot snoot. You're he gonna- was born of toxicity. Toxicity's never going to take him down. There, uh, there is still some uh, very fun Mothra uh, flitting around Godzilla, uh, really being a pest more than uh, a real threat. And Godzilla, unfortunately, uh, has that atomic breath that we've been talking about and lays into Mothra something fierce with that atomic breath. It is truly an epic battle that Mothra seems to stand no chance of winning. Do you really think that the atomic breath is getting Mothra to leave him alone, or is it attracting it like a moth to a flame? I think it's a, a, a real devil's bargain here, Court, where Mothra is attracted to the atomic fire because of its brightness, and also destroyed by the atomic fire. Uh, there's really no way out of this for Mothra, as far as I'm concerned. It's a suicide mission, Bo, and it was clearly from the start. Mothra eventually collapses, Court, dies from, uh, from exhaustion. But Godzilla has lost all interest in this egg at this point. He is, now that he's defeated Mothra, he's got a little pep in his step, a little glide in his stride. He's ready to start fucking things up on a bigger scale. Ignores the egg, starts going after uh, a whole island. In fact, uh, this would be back on uh, Infant Island, as they call it. Um, But... Before that, we do get a little uh, military action against Godzilla. The uh, JSDF, the uh, Japanese Self-Defense Forces. Um, you know, th- this is really just lip service as far as I'm con- concerned to the Japanese military. We got to at least roll them out there, but they don't stand a chance. If uh, your giant-ass moth ain't going to do anything, your tanks, which have already proven to be ineffectual, are certainly going to do no damage. I do believe they're only there to corral Godzilla into an eventual trap that they try and fail once again. Yeah, we should really just stop trying to set traps for Godzilla. Uh, wake our, our giant moths when the need arises and just let things uh, roll from there. Mothra has settled upon her egg as she lies dying and has managed to somehow, I don't know, heat the egg to, to uh, conjugation. At any rate, the egg starts to fucking hatch. It starts to get all glowy and trippy, suitable for 1964 film, and then cracks begin to appear, 
Uh, and then we have one of the larvae come out, which is essentially just a big caterpillar. Uh, but, Court, one of the characters points out there is not one Mothra uh, larva inside. There are two. It's twins, she says. You're going to have to pay double for that kind of childbearing. I wonder if Mothra expected it, because that is a lot of additional work. One of those Mothras may go up for adoption. It could be possible, Bo. She could use the money. He's got a whole island to watch out for. Boy, I'll tell you, Cord, it's such a shame when people have to go outside the country to adopt a Mothra when there are so many needy Mothras right here in the United States. But that's Your a lips such to God's ears. <laughs> it's for another time. Um... So, Godzilla has made his way to uh, this island. We have some larvae uh, swimming after him in the surf. They do a little pincer maneuver uh, court as Godzilla approaches the island where it turns out uh, a teacher and a bunch of kids uh, as well as the natives and our heroes have all converged in a cave. They're hiding from the battle that, that is sure to occur outside. And the Mothra uh, larvae start uh, start in with a good old-fashioned tail bite. You are correct, Bo. It seems that Godzilla's weak point right now is currently the very end of his tail. Both the Mothra in the final form that can fly can drag him away by it, and it looks as though the two larvae, if they work together, can pull him, but one on its own is only enough to be an annoyance. Boy, that tail bite sure sends Godzilla into a frenzy, however. He is hopping mad. Quite literally. And he finally gets free of the initial attack from this larva, only to find himself greeted with some good old-fashioned larva silk being spit at him from the other larva. As soon as he turns to face that larva, however, the other one starts with the silk. It's a real, uh, a, a nice move by the larva, putting him in the crossfire of this silk, where he is... Uh, slowly covered kingdom of the spider style in web it is definitely very resilient silk if there's any of it left over after the battle i'm sure it could be repurposed to great use the strongest silk in the world uh court is mothra silk everyone knows that and essentially what they are covering covering godzilla with is the gdp of brazil so, with Silk flying this way and that way, Court, Godzilla is doing his best. He's mixing it up, he's throwing his tail around, knocking some rocks around, using his atomic breath to try to uh, fry these larvae who are hiding behind mountains and hiding in crevices. They're really approaching this in a very smart way. And it begs the question, Court, are these Mothra larvae individually smarter than Godzilla... And if so, is two of them just way too much for Godzilla to ever handle? I do believe Godzilla has never had to go up against, for lack of a better term, gorilla-style kaiju fighting where they're bobbing and weaving, moving in and out, using the natural environment. He's used to the kind that will step right up face-to-face and slug it out. He's not used to the bob-and-weave tactic. He's going to have to adapt. You would think he would, uh, Court, but there is no adaptation in Godzilla this time around. He is essentially covered with silk, dropped to the ground, and driven off this island, all webbed up, uh, and forced back into the sea, unceremoniously. Godzilla just didn't know what hit him this time. He may have came out a little too early and unprepared to be able to do battle, though. 
We'll see. This is still a very young Godzilla. There's still plenty of his career left to go. He could bounce back from this yet again. There's a lot of overconfidence at work here. This is Godzilla feeling good about his initial battle with Mothra, kicking around a few buildings. He, He gets himself set up against a couple of larvae. He thinks this is no problem. If I killed Mama... I can kill the babies way way easier. That ain't the case this time around, Court. Godzilla gets worked. It's two versus one. Now, granted, those are unfair odds, but I would almost say that Godzilla v. One Mothra uh, larva might be a fair fight. Well, the larvae seem to be fitted with a better defense mechanism that they lose once the wings come into place. Perhaps because the other Mothra is more equipped to easily get away, this defense mechanism of the Silk is what they need. It's a good point, uh, Court. I think that potentially Mothra evolution is something we should all study at least a little bit. Uh, in this case, the, the film ends, this particular uh, bout, ends with Godzilla humiliated, driven back into the sea, and the Mothra larvae and uh, Shobijin returning to their home. Never uh, something you want to see the Big G have to go through as a fan, but as a supporter and a telecaster, you're going to have to deal with it. Look, uh, we may have our hometown favorites, Court, but we call them like we see them. And this time around, Godzilla came in unprepared. He he looked good at the first couple of rounds. By the, the end of the fight, he had nothing left. He was out of gas. He had no improvisation. He had no answers to the, the kinds of uh, silky swings being thrown his way by these larvae. He shouldn't have come to the fight fully hungry. He wasn't prepared. That's the end of that story. Well, he's got some time to think about it, Court, uh, by which I mean about a month until we catch up with him one more time. Uh, Look, this is an absolutely fantastic kaiju film. Uh, Godzilla versus uh, The Thing, uh, as it was known in the States, or, or Mothra versus Godzilla, I think is the original title. Uh, no matter how you slice it, you got Mothra, you got Larvae, you got Godzilla uh, chewing shit up. It moves at a brisk pace. This thing comes in about 88 minutes. You got two big set piece battles, one with Mothra, one with the Larvae. Both of them are good. I don't know. I say this ranks up there with the heavyweights of Godzilla films, Court. Well, you also had Mothra at the start of it, which had his own very had her own very successful film and then moved on to basically revive Godzilla and bring him back after what happened with King Kong. The battle is great. All the stuff with the military is absolutely great. The film itself is very entertaining. You never really get bored. You don't have too much of a lag. Totally enjoyable. Right you are, Court. Uh, Should we tell the folks what they have in store for them in our next matchup? Absolutely. Next out of the gate, Court. Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, Godzilla not even showing up in the title. How much of a chance does Godzilla stand if he doesn't even make top billing? I think we're going to have to have friends come in on this. We're looking at a Royal Rumble, Bo. A total Royal Rumble. It's going to be our first of uh, the the multiple kaiju films. And uh, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, it's got some all-stars. I don't want to tease it too much. Let's just say Rodan makes an appearance, ladies and gentlemen. Terror from a pterodactyl-like creature, Bo. And some grappling from a Godzilla. All next time on the G-Spot. All right, folks, we will be back next month with some more Godzilla goodness. But now let us turn our attention 
to Chanwook Park's incredible film, Thirst and With Me, is one Duncan McLeish. So, uh, thanks for sticking around. It is time now to introduce uh, the gentleman who will be discussing uh, the incredible uh, Chanwook Park film, Thirst with Me. Um, you may know him from such podcasts as uh, the podcast Under the Stairs and Duncan and Bo Come Correct. It is, of course, Duncan McLeish. Hello. <laughs> It's a very serious introduction there. I love yeah. it, though. Yeah, well, this isn't our usual show, Duncan. This isn't a bunch of screwing around. We've got a movie to talk about. People did not come here to listen to us crack wise. I understand what you're saying. I will say that at some point, though, your movie choices uh, for Hero Hero Show can be questionable. And I like to think that if you look back on my appearances on this particular podcast, that when I come on, shit gets real, Bo. It's, it's, it's all business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how dare you uh, suggest that my analysis of Stacy uh, Attack of the Schoolgirl Zombies <laughs> was not serious-minded. I did not. I, I said your your film choice. I didn't see your analysis. Your analysis is always on point, but the films that you direct your analysis at can be questionable from time to time. They interest me, Duncan. That's all that matters. <laughs> if I want to watch something, it goes on the show. I, I think. I think the, the the beauty of doing Asian horror cinema um, is that you you get maybe more diversity in the fields that you can talk about and and maybe any other um continent of horror cinema uh, i think that you there are you know as a continent they're not not scared to go crazy like at the drop of a hat um and at the same time not afraid to go absolutely terrifying and every now and again you get a mixture of crazy funny and like artistically mind blown, um, as a movie we're going to discuss right now, and the director we're going to discuss. Uh, and I'm very glad you brought me on because you know for a fact I fucking love this guy. Yeah, I mentioned this in the upfront. This is the first Chanwook Park film we've talked about on this show, mm-hmm. um, and it, it, not for any particular reason. Uh, it, it's just that I didn't want to do Old Boy. Is the thing. It's you a know? given, isn't it? Really, you think about it, when people think Asian horror, um, and then they start widening it out from your obvious ones like Juon or, or, or Ringu, um, you instantly start, right, we're not just doing Japanese stuff, let's start looking across to other countries. Old Boy inevitably starts to creep very high up on that list. And I'm kind of with you. I think Old Boy is a phenomenal movie. I also think it's been talked to death. Um, and Thirst is a hugely important movie in the in the the Wook series of movies because this is for all intents purposes, this is the movie that really solidifies his position before his jump to making his feature length movie debut in America. Um which didn't go exactly according to plan and unfortunately he's went back well, fortunately and unfortunately, he's back to doing stuff in his, his home country. Um, even though I think me and you both agree Stoker is amazing. Thirst for me is a really, really interesting movie. I think you, we, 
I think when you originally pitched this to me, you basically said this is probably his most in line with what you would class as horror, even though if you look at his previous movies, it certainly does more than straddle that genre, but this one is, you know, is unashamedly pivoted directly into the the, the, the kind of tropes and the, the, the creatures, the subgenres of horror. So, um, yeah. It's, it's, it, I, the thing is, though, I have, a, I have a very strong memory of seeing this movie when it was available in the UK, and then even a couple of years ago, and thinking, it's good. I don't think it's... I'd like I, My opinion was that Stoker was, like, was a huge jump up. Um, and having watched it just before we started recording tonight, I would put it on par with Stoker, if not slightly higher. Um, I think it's a really, really interesting movie, and so many layers. I think and that's the beauty of it. It's what you always get with um, Chanwick Park, is you get so many layers to to kind of delve through. Um and yeah, old boy's the obvious one, and sympathy for Mister Vengeance, and sympathy for Lady Vengeance. You could do all those ones, but they're not interesting. Like they're, vampires, they're great movies. Oh. Yeah, they don't have leaping vampires. They don't have little. <laughs> which, I mean, which is common to the vampire mythology of that region. Mm-hmm. Like it happens in like Mister Vampire and the, the Hong Kong cinema and that kind of thing. It's always uh, even it. If memory serves, it's been a while since I've watched it and I've been kind of meaning to, but I think Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires is kind of yeah. leapy vampires as well. But Yeah, they, they, they like to jump uh, elongated uh, for a period of time and then land majestically. Yeah, yeah. well, they're vampires, man. They're, they're fucking cool vampires, shit. Duncan. They're cool as shit. <laughs> they do whatever they want. Um, yeah, so... You know, it's it's weird. Um, first of all, I, worth pointing out, uh, because I didn't do it in the upfront, that this is a movie that was inspired, according to uh, to Chanwick Park, as uh, being inspired by Emile Zola's Therese Rakin, uh, which is the story, Duncan, I, mm-hmm. I have right here. Of a young woman unhappily married to her first cousin by an overbearing aunt who may seem to be well-intentioned but in many ways is deeply selfish. Teresa's husband, Camille, is sickly and egocentric and when the opportunity arises, Therese enters into a turbulent and sordidly passionate affair with one of Camille's friends, Laurent. Now, uh, this was first published in 1867. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Emile Zola. Uh, Chanwick Park was a philosophy uh, major in college, and I'm sure probably ran across Zola there. Mm-hmm. So what he decided to do with this story is whip a little vampire on it. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> a- as you do. As well as, uh, even even though my understanding of the Zola novel, I've never read it myself, is that it deals with similar themes of the sensual and the, the, the worldly pleasures and that kind of thing. So, you know, a little, a little tidbit, edutainment, Duncan, as yeah. ever. He, he does enjoy taking, and that was one of the reasons I really like him as a director as well, is that he's not afraid to take um, source material out with the the kind of region that he is from 
and adapt that. Even if you look at something most recently, like The Handmaiden's Tale, is actually based on uh, is it The Fingersmith? Yes, written, that's right. Yep, yep, yeah, yep, yep, written, yep. Yeah, written by a Welsh woman. So, and he adapts it at a completely different time period, restructures it, and makes it fit. You know the the, the culture that he is from, uh, and sets it in a, a history time period, which would make sense to people of that part of the world. I think that's really ballsy. There's a lot of people out there that there's a lot of directors out there that just don't do that. And I, I like the attention to the craft there of saying, right, well, fundamentally the backbone of this this particular story or this particular work um is really cool and I quite like that. Now let's start adapting it and let's start changing it and let's start modifying it um in a way where we can start to bring a bit of the uh, a bit of surrealism in there, and a bit of the stuff that he does really well. Um, like there's, there's endless conversations. He's one of these. He's like, it kind of reminds me of, and I'm going to drop big names right at the start here. Is that there is something very Kub, uh, Kubrickian about him, um, and that the way he sets up a shot, his color palettes, the particular position of certain things. Um, like that's that you, it's the whole process that I get infatuated with him as a director from the fact that he takes something which on paper doesn't you know really over overtly resemble what you get at the end, but he takes that as his backbone, then starts working, fleshing it out, changing it, re, reshaping it, reshaping, and then bringing it over into you know the, the world of cinema. And then he starts doing more work over the top of that craft and his shot set design, you know, all this deliberate methodical work from start to finish and I just don't think there's many directors out there that do that Bo I think a lot of them just think you turn the camera on, you tell the actor to do something and you call cut Um, and that's fine and that works for a lot of movies but I think you also need that kind of obsessive structured vision of a director like um uh, Chanwick Park to, to really to grab your attention I think a lot of people don't get that about his movies I think a lot of people spend so much time trying to focus on maybe a narrative or or maybe um, a reveal and they don't actually understand that everything they're seeing is the reveal um, and it's a, it's a, a, a wonderfully um, contradictory movie as well in terms of even just the subject matter of vampires um, it sticks within certain lore, and I, I'm not familiar completely with um, Asian vampire lore in general, but it sticks within certain things and flies in the face of other things, like these vampires here don't have fangs for a start um, they don't appear to have the allergies to things like silver uh, to things like garlic the only thing that seems to, or even even things like holy water, the only thing that seems to carry through um, is the idea of sunlight, uh, which I find quite interesting. So I, I don't know if you have delved deep into this one. Is that is that an Asian thing, or is it just like a choice that he's made? Which part? I mean, they like Park is playing kind of fast and loose here. With mm-hmm. some of this stuff. I mean, there is some regional stuff. Like the leaping. Uh, things generally are a thing. Um, it's just not in this film. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, 
he's definitely taking liberties. I, I don't believe holy water just because it's not it do, it's not culturally the same. So yeah. like holy water and a lot of the the Christian iconography isn't so much a thing. But um, you know, stuff like running water tends to be that that's a thing that I think jumped uh, jumped the pond. At any rate. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a different take on it. And before we start traipsing through the story of this thing, let's just warn, uh, listeners here, things are going to get sexy. <laughs> this is a, this is a steamy movie. This has got full frontal male nudity, boy. Uh, yeah, full frontal male nudity, not full frontal female, now that I think about it, but, um, nonetheless... One uh, lovely Ak Bin Kim, uh, who who plays Taiju in this film, and is oh she's good. Yes, uh, not not just a lovely lady, and she is certainly that. But boy, she has a ball in this movie. Um, <laughs> she's great. Did, I, did you recognize her, by the way? I did, but I don't know where I recognize her from. Uh, she's the lead in the villainous. Fuck. There yeah. you go. Yep. There you go. Sure is. So, uh, yeah, and she's great in that as well. Mm-hmm. So, boy, and speaking of old boy, the first scene of the villainous. Not saying I'm not saying it's better than old boy. I'm saying it it knew old boy was a thing, <laughs> <laughs> and said, uh huh. <laughs> see, let's see how you like this. Yeah, I still I still don't know how they did it. It's it's fucking amazing. Yeah, the editing, the editing on it is like mind blowing. I mean, you can see how they did the the whole thing. And oh boy, the, the impressive thing on that is is legitimately shot as one, I believe, it's one take, um, which is the thing that makes your jaw drop. Um, in the case of that one, I I, I don't know, I, I, I wizardry yeah. or who sold their soul to Satan to to get that shot, but I'm glad they did. Yeah, it's it's fucking amazing. Like it's a perfect blend of just clever editing and technology, and also just fucking outstanding action. It's badassery, I would say, Bo. A badassery. badassery. Yes, uh, not, but we're not here to talk about the villainous. That <laughs> maybe some other time. It's a great movie, though. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, more importantly, Akbin Kim, uh, the the lead female in this, is. Uh, the lead in the villainous, and she is uh, a badass, uh, as Duncan mentioned. Oh, yes. As she is in this. So, uh, all right, let's get rolling. So, what we're talking about here is a guy named Sing Hyun, uh, who is a, a, a priest, a father, <laughs> and a father, and he he's donating his time at the hospital. Uh, he, uh, you know, hears confessions, but he kind of gets kicked around a little bit. Like everyone's constantly telling him like uh, there's a a scene at the very beginning where he's uh, hearing confession and at the end of it, he's like, yeah, do a couple of hail Marys and this and that. And also, uh, you know, just get over your boyfriend and and don't, don't think about killing yourself. And she's like, look, uh, you worry about the prayers. I'll take care of me. Okay. Hmm. And even when he goes to, uh, you know, sort of his mentor, um, a guy by the name of Priest Roe, Father Roe, and even in that relationship, 
the guy, you know, Father Rowe, by the way, is this blind guy in a wheelchair. He's kind of a helpless guy, but is clearly uh, sort of a father figure to this uh, orphan kid, Sang Kyun, who grew up in an orphanage and became a priest. And there's a moment where uh, Priest Rowe is like, hey, you know, you should have gone. If you wanted to do this, you should have stayed out of the priesthood and just become a doctor. Yeah. Because that's what you like to do. You like to be in the hospital. You like to help people. And but everybody's kind of got uh, some advice for him. Yeah, you know? he also he also has slightly selfish intent in saying that as well. He says, "I tried to push you to go and become a doctor because I thought if you studied in a particular field, you could cure my blindness." So it wasn't even just it's for your benefit; it's also for my benefit as well. And their kind of interactions moving on in the the movie are always leaning towards that of this of this priest who is kind of using him, you know what I mean? He, he makes him, no greater scene than he makes him push him in his wheelchair this long distance, only to find it when they arrive at this small parked area. It's actually an electronic wheelchair that he can move himself. So he makes this priest push him <laughs> to, to arrive yeah. at this area where he can just feel himself around. So it's, it's kind of indicate, you know, like that, He's, it's like you say, he's a, he's a well-to-do guy, he's, he's trying to help out here, but a lot of people just walk all over him. Yeah, he, I mean, he he's definitely pushed around by everyone around him and kind of taken for a ride a little bit. And so, Seng-Yun decides that what he's going to do in the face of all this is, is sort of martyr himself. He's going to try to do sort of the ultimate good, mm-hmm. which is uh, he, he goes to this facility... Um, in uh, in Africa, I believe. I would have uh, got that. Yeah, I, I would have said that. it doesn't see where it is, but the the missionary man there is very much of it. Could be like an extra blood diamond. Yeah, I mean, I think they say that it uh, the disease originated in Africa or something. But at any rate, so he goes to this facility where scientists are working on a vaccine for this virus that. Um, nobody knows where it came from and you know it's sort of like an Ebola thing like we're we're trying to figure out how to how to stop it and so what they do is they have they test vaccines on people who are infected and in the case of Seng Yun they are going to intentionally infect him with uh, the virus as well as give him this vaccine to see if he acquires the disease and the disease it turns out uh, it puts boils on your extremities and in your muscles, and it makes the, you vomit blood. It makes you vomit blood. I mean, it's a real gnarly way to go. But sure enough, Sang Yun starts to exhibit some of these symptoms, and uh, th- so things are not going well up to and including him. I, uh, one of the the deals uh, is that he's a a, a flautist. Mm-hmm. And uh, and play plays a, a like a wooden flute, and likes to play. Or there there's a girl at the hospital that likes to hear uh, or uh, something he plays, and uh, he's playing in his room at this facility, and then starts vomiting blood as he's playing, so it squirts out the end of the flute. Yeah, it's one of the one of the first scenes in the movie where you're like that. Oh yeah, this movie's going to be awesome. <laughs> Right, like you didn't have to do that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> so, 
Uh, yeah, it's a fair few of them in this movie as well. Yeah. Oh man, boy, the last third of this movie is just <laughs> mayhem. <laughs> yeah, it it really is, man. This movie goes places. So, uh, so Sengyun is 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 sick. He's dying uh, after he vomits up all the blood into his flute. Uh, then at that point, like he is on death's door. So he's given a transfusion of blood, uh, to try to save his life, but he dies on the table mm-hmm. or so they think. Yeah. Because as they are calling the time of death, you see the, the, the sheet that they have covered him with begin to bubble up as he breathes in and out. And they're like, holy shit, this guy's alive. And it turns out this becomes a bit of a local legend. Uh, he is one of uh, 500 that survives. He's the only one, and he's a priest. So when they release him from this facility, finally, all bandaged up because he's still got boils and whatnot all over him, um, he becomes sort of the, this besainted figure where people are desperate for him to pray over them because uh, people think that he's touched by God. You know, he, he is the priest who survived an unsurvivable disease. Yeah. And, and not only did he survive it, he died and came back and, and very, very Jesus-y Duncan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story. Hmm. Um, Maybe it turned... it once or twice. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's been popular. Didn't he have a beard? <laughs> Uh, who knows, man? The pictures are all over the place. It's so hard to tell. There are no good pictures. Uh, Jesus did not selfie, it turns out, much to, like, all of our dismay. He did bowl really well in the Big Lebowski, though. Yeah, oh. You don't fuck with the Jesus. And So, Sengyun is now out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's out of his bandages somewhat. He still doesn't look great, but he looks better. And by the way, when he's all bandaged up, he kind of looks like the Invisible Man. It's real cool. Yeah, a, a, an intentional nod, no doubt. I'm sure. I'm sure. And so he is. Uh, he's at the hospital one day, and this woman, it, it's kind of this great scene where you see her struggling to get to the window yeah. in the background. And then she starts banging on the window and it's like, you need to come pray over my son. My son has cancer. And given the awkwardness of the moment and because Sing Young can't say no to anybody, sure enough, he goes to, to pray. And uh, at the hospital with the, this woman, and they realize at the hospital that Sang Yun actually knows them. Yeah. Uh, that he, when he was in, in the orphanage, he grew up nearby and he was friends with uh, the kid uh, whose name is Kang Wu. And there is also this girl that they took in by the name of Tai Ju. Mm-hmm. And she is just, uh, the story goes um, that there were some fr- friends of Lady Ra who is um, 
King Wu's mother. She's the matriarch of this clan. And some people moved in with with her that were friends, and she was kind of taking care of them, but they were deadbeats. And then they took off and left the girl with her, and she just raised her. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into the quality of parenting. Yeah. But nonetheless, so Sing Yun knows all these people, and they end up in inviting him uh, in, to dinner. And... Uh, there is, like, immediately we do get glimpses of the fact that Taiju is kind of treated like shit. Yeah. Yeah, the way, and, they, the way she's spoken about when she's in the room is if she's not in the room or she can't hear or feelings don't matter are quite evident. Yeah, and there's kind of a sexually humiliating component to mm-hmm. it, which is, is really awkward like it's just one of those things like i can't believe this is being discussed out in the open here in front of this priest and so uh we 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 cut to sing yoon's pad where after this meeting and you know he after running into taiju it's clear that he had some maybe a crush on her when he was a kid or at last my love has come along yeah, in in traditionally romantic fashion, he's listening to people fuck, yep. and caning his inner thighs to, you know, spank away the horny. Yeah, I I get the feeling that he he has misinterpreted the the phrase "spank the monkey." Uh, I think he thinks it means something else. Either that, or I'm doing it wrong. One of the two. Yeah, it, and so, but so, but this is kind of the moment too that things start popping off because when he was having dinner with uh, Lady Ra and and family, he they offer him some food and he's like, I don't want any food. I say I smell blood or something, and then we see Taiju go to the bathroom after that, uh, and it turns out she's menstruating. Don't Said he was sure. <laughs> he he was smelling menstrual blood. Oh boy! I know, but it happened in the movie. It's a thing. Was she on her and menzies? Oh no, she she was on her menzies oh. and on her monthlies. Oh. And and so, but he's he's getting like super hearing too. Yeah, because he starts to hear all this stuff happening around him. It's this great scene. Where all like all around him in this building, he starts to hear individual like conversations and you know people uh, t- crying and things happening on the street, and then he looks down at his arm, and his it like zooms in to microscopic level where he sees like the dust mites on his arm, mm-hmm. and then he passes the fuck out as you would. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. <laughs> Yeah, if all of a sudden all of your senses went to 30 instead of 10, <laughs> you'd lose your mind. Yeah, just 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 a little bit more. Just a little bit. This is the... the I, I really like the... I've seen many kind of transformations or many reveals of, of a character being a vampire. Uh, what makes this one kind of interesting is it kind of goes down the superhero road. 
Like, yeah, the, it kind of it, it, it's sort of Spider-Man-ish yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. which I love because it, it once again it's bucking the trends of cliches associated with with vampirism and 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 storytelling and horror movies, which would focus on you know the the pain of transformation, the lusting of blood, you know the the you know the inability to to see daylight, all these things that that are just tired cliches at this point particularly in 2009 where we are getting a complete revival of people telling you know kind of vampirism stories we're, we're not that far removed i think maybe a year from what the right one in um you know within the next two three years we're going to have movies like only lovers left alive and byzantium so you know i mean this is kind of this is a conscious he's part of a conscious wave of people trying to change these things so the fact that the, he chooses this as his reveal, I think, is just genius because you get all the information you need to, as much as you need to know about his powers as well moving forward, and we're not leaning into the fact that he needs blood because guess what? As an audience, we know that already. Right. It, it It's never a big thing, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the, the thing in the movie is him confessing it. Uh, and we'll get to it, but but first, first, let's, let's, let's talk a little Taiju. we're going to talk a a little taiju uh, and maybe maybe a little bit of the Cronenbergian influence on a scene coming up here which made me I forgot all about this and it creeped me the fuck out watching it it's it's so good so taiju uh, so again just to make sure this is clear to listeners Mrs. Ra uh, Lady Ra is the woman who took in Taiju, who was an or kind of orphan girl that was raised sort of as a sister to uh, Kang Wu, mm-hmm. but as they grew older, it became an adult relationship. Yeah. So, um, so Kang Wu and Taiju are together. I think they may be married. Yeah, that is correct. And Taiju spends her nights. <laughs> Taking a pair of like shears, like little tiny shears, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of shears you would use to say cut off a finger, about that big. I, I would have said trim a bonsai tree, but I like where you're going. And well, you know, <laughs> I saw four stories, um, <laughs> or four rooms. That's what it was. Four rooms. <laughs> yeah, and so she she takes it in hand. And as her sickly husband lies in his bed, because after Sang Yun prayed over him, he got better. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, no one knows why, and I don't think it's magic. I think it's just a thing that happened. But anyway, so uh, she is taking these shears and stabbing downward and stopping just inside his open mouth without actually stabbing him. Yep. And she does it a little bit faster yep. and it's just like, Oh man, she wants to kill him so bad. Uh, and, and he's uh, kind of an asshole in fairness. He's not yeah. a great guy. He's not a nice character at all. And know that, um, Chamwood Park deliberately elongates this scene out to levels, which will make your asshole sweat. <laughs> So, because like, if you're watching this for the first time or had forgotten about it the way I had forgotten about it, um, 
I was like, that, did she kill him? And if she kills him, this is a gnarly way to go. Once again, think uh, Dead Zone. That's what like that's what was going through my head the full time. I was just like Dead Zone, Dead Zone, Dead Zone, mm-hmm. Dead Zone. Um, and the scene at first is with you know the the way it's edited is is fucking wonderful because it's her holding the shears now you see her lifting them up and obviously the camera's at her face and then the camera's back down uh, his open mouth and the hand comes down and then eventually the camera just stays at his open mouth and the hand is just coming down and stuff it, it, it is gloriously uncomfortable to watch um, and kind of starts to put you in the mindset that a uh, taiju uh, albeit as a woman who is downtrodden may have slight mental health issues, Bo. Maybe slightly unstable. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point in the film, though, it kind of is painted as the abused young wife. Yes. Who is, yes, she is not completely hinged, but also maybe this is like her way of lashing out and... You know, these no. are her subliminal urges, and she's not actually hurting anyone. Do it. it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, removing yourself from the situation, going into another room, and then cursing your significant other out loud before walking back into the room and resuming normal business. Yes, it's a it's the Korean version of that. Yeah, it's the Korean, Korean version of punching a pillow. Um, yeah, it's just. <laughs> Shears in the mouth, Duncan. That's how they like it. <laughs> Shears in the mouth. Oh. Uh, so, so that is going on. And then the next day, Sang Hyun wakes up and his back is smoldering a little because mm-hmm. uh, he, he passed out in his room and now it's sunlight out. And uh, so he also has some of the Emmanuel virus, Emmanuel yeah. uh, virus sores popping back up on his face and hands and he's like well shit so he goes he goes to the hospital you know bandages bandages himself back up and he's giving last rites to this woman who even though they have tried to bandage a wound it continues to kind of gush blood Mm -hmm. and he uh, gives her the last rites, but he, he touches her, and he licks some of her blood from his thumb. Then he uh, slips down the hallway, and there's this this kind of hefty fella that uh, he was talking to earlier, this guy who told him this great story, but he, like he's dying, he's in hospice care, and uh, asks, like, hey, do you think I'm going to go to heaven? Because... I you know maybe I didn't do, I wasn't the best person but I remember this one time where I was given this cake mm-hmm. and it was the best cake I'd ever been given but then I ran into these two girls and they were starving and I gave them that cake yeah and I it must have been you know kind of warm by that point and all that but they loved it you know and I I, I gave them that cake and do you think God remembers that and and Sang Yun actually has a really nice line where he says I think you know. God, his specialty is remembering. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a really nice moment. And so he goes to this hefty fellow's room uh, and pulls the blood bag <laughs> that is supposed to be going into said hefty fella 
and just lays down on the floor, pops the tube in his mouth, and goes to town. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. And But after he does it, he seems to be kind of horrified by what he's done. And so he jumps out a window and lands on a car in a pretty gnarly fashion. Like, it's a good splat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it takes a second, but he starts to move again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, shit. Sangyun <laughs> is full vampire. <laughs> He's gone full vamp. And so there, all right, let, let's get to one of my favorite moments in the movie, which is, so Sangyun now understands, if not that he, well, I think he understands that he's a vampire, he uses the word himself, but mm-hmm. he, he starts to put it all together, right? Like, I can't be killed, I'm craving blood, I got the vision, I got the hearing, probably got a super sniffer as well, and he uh, is, is coming into his own, meanwhile, Taiju has snuck out of a room. And is just running barefooted through the streets like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. And Sing Hyun runs into her and and stops her. And there's this moment where they, you know, kind of regard each other and like lickety split and lightning fast. Sing Hyun kind of turns her around and puts shoes on her feet. You're such and- a sappy, sentimental bastard, honestly. But it it's such a nice because again the whole I I think it's important to note one of the big thrusts of this movie is that Sangyun is always trying to do the right thing. Yeah, he's always trying to be the good guy. There's also a story specifically with this character about her trying to run away, and in her attempts to run away, the calluses that she would get in her feet, which. Um, as kids, uh, Kang Wu would try to force Sang Hyung to, to touch. It's kind of like a, touch her feet, sort of thing. So the fact he does this, um, and how that very much links into the final shot of the movie, which I think is a, a lovely bookend, mm-hmm. um, there is, there is a bit of poignancy, and there is, it is a very nice scene. It is a very nice scene. I, I was going to go further into it, but yeah, you're right. That. It has a nice scene. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Yun goes to his his priest row father figure and lets him lets him know what's going on. You know, and he's like, "Hey, guess what? I'm a vampire now. That's pretty fucked up, right?" <laughs> and he's like, "I don't want to kill anybody. You know, like I'm not I, again trying to do the right thing. He doesn't want to be a murderous vampire. He's got a real uh, what like uh, Louis from Interview with a Vampire thing going on. Oh, nice, yeah. And <laughs> I don't know if it's nice. Uh, um, well, you know. <laughs> and so Priest Row ends up feeding him. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, we g- cut to another dinner at the the home of Mrs. Ra and Kang Wu and Taiju. And Taiju, at some point during the dinner, just fucks off. <laughs> it's just like, I've had enough of all of you. Like, I got... <laughs> I got you over here talking about Borafil. <laughs> I got you talking about Mahjong over here. That's, that's the Borafil guy. <laughs> right. 
and you know, but it's just like you know, Lady Ra's being a real shit to her. King Wu is like at one point they just shove her down and kind of laugh because they see her panties. Yeah, and it's just like holy shit. No wonder she's you know mouth shearing the guy late at night. <laughs> So, anyway, she, like, takes all, she, you know, ex- doesn't even excuse herself. She's just like, fuck, I'm getting out of here. And, like, goes to the, the shop part of the house. Because uh, they, they run a, I don't know, fabric shop or some shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lady Rod and, and, and um, Tai Ju is sort of the sales clerk. I don't know. All, all they do is just sit at a table every time you see him. They're not, I don't know. I don't know how they stay in business, Duncan. <laughs> Anyway, it's not the point. Not the point. I'm taking half a star off this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, Sang Yun ends up following... Like, he goes to the bathroom and and follows her. And finds her in the store. And, like, she sees the boils. And uh, then Sang Yun has his very first kiss, Duncan. Mm -hmm. And then... That first kiss just starts to uh, lead to getting down. Bounce. You know? Yeah, it's... So... They start making out. And then Sing Hyun like, grabs a, the closest thing that's a beaten stick. And starts whacking himself in the thighs again. And Taiju kind of has to calm him down. And it's like, oh, oh, baby, let's not start hitting ourselves in the dick quite so soon. <laughs> and, and so she kind of eases his pants down and sees the bruises um, that uh, he's given himself. And, you know, they've been making out a little bit, so she is partially undressed as well. Mm-hmm. And so... This is a real cock tease of a scene a little bit. Because they they start fucking... It's like just inserted. Mm-hmm. And then the Lady Ra and uh, King Wu start yelling. Like, hey, where's Taiju? Where the fuck did everybody go? And so they have to stop fucking real quick. And they're... <laughs> Then they go back upstairs and are having one of those conversations where they're having one conversation and everyone else at the table is having another. Because mm-hmm. they're talking about Mahjong. And uh, Taiju is like, yeah, I can I can play. I can sit in. Because they had to carry Lady Ra to bed because she was so drunk. And <laughs> she likes her vodka, it turns out. She she does like a drink. Yeah. And... and so King Wu is like, you don't even know how to play. And she's like, oh, Taiju know how to play. <laughs> Taiju know how to play very good. And, <laughs> and, and like, you know, poor Sing Yun is just like, I know what you mean. And, and like, there, it's just a real, we're, we're talking about the fact that we were just fucking a second ago. Like we didn't conjugate the verb, mm-hmm. but there was fucking. For the show, but there was fucking. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. It's happened to all of us at a time. Oh, I know exactly. What you mean. I, I know exactly what you mean. It's uh, coitus interruptus, I believe, is is uh, the technical term. Yeah, for that. the, the, that's the Latin. Yeah. Uh, so, 
so Taiju uh, is hanging out with Lady Ra in the fabric shop, and she's like, you know what I ought to do? I ought to go volunteer at the hospital. You know, that's uh, that's why I've been running so much, and you think I'm sleepwalking even though I'm just running around like a crazy person. Um, but yeah, maybe that'll settle me down. Maybe that'll, you know, get rid of this anxious energy I have or whatever. Also, you know, this does double duty of covering her, her would be Triss with Sang Yun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's worth pointing out there, there's a sequence here, like as she's going into the hospital and stuff, there is some excellent camera work in this film. This is one of, uh, for a guy like Chanwook Park, who is known for good shots mm-hmm. there is not a bad one in this movie and some of them are outstanding yeah this is one of his most beautiful films and i think stoker is one of the most beautiful films i've ever seen to me the the logical progress like if you were to if you were in a position where all you'd seen was the vengeance trilogy for example and then you would watch stoker which i think a lot of people had I think that maybe negatively played into people's reactions to Stoker. And when they watched it, they were just like, you know, it's it's just all all style and no substance. They just couldn't get the fact that, you know, as a director, his visual eye became far more interesting between every single movie. And this, to me, is almost um, like a Rosetta Stone to really getting on board with what he is doing in Stoker uh, as a movie. Like, specific colour palettes, specific choice, specific camera work. Um, and, yeah, I, I I don't think there's there's one shot in this movie that doesn't look like a lot of time, care and consideration went into it. Right down to the choice of where the camera will be positioned, where it's moving. To, you know, everything feels almost like it's been mind mapped out to the nth degree. Um, and some of the camera work is, is, for lack of a better word, absolutely fucking incredible um, in this movie. And as as the movie goes on as well, it betters itself. Yeah, it gets better. Which is just somehow. insane. It's just, it really, really is. Because by the end of the movie, I'm like, I, I, you know, you just want to, even if you're watching it in your house yourself, you just want to stand up and applaud. <laughs> I know. <laughs> give the, give, uh, the the filmmakers a woohoo yeah uh, in absentia yeah um so uh, speaking of camera work let's talk about let's let's get fucking dirty <laughs> um so, because now uh, Taiju is volunteering at at this hospital mm-hmm. and kind of all but corners Sing Yun and is is ready to get down with it with uh, some fucking again and so. She, I think she starts sucking his fingers. Yeah, and then he starts sucking her calloused feet. Yeah, and then they start really getting down. And then he bites her. And at, at first, you're like, "Is she gonna be a vampire?" It's like, "Well, not that way." Mm-hmm. And but he bites her, and she's like, "I like it. Keep doing it." And man, it this scene is legit like artful and hot yeah yeah oh yeah if you if you masturbated to this scene i would not judge you i haven't yet (laughs) the day is young (laughs) but uh you know we'll see where the evening goes um but yeah i mean it's just one of those things like uh, 
a sex scene in a movie is kind of dime a dozen, mm-hmm. and it's rare that you see one that's just like they're getting fucking down. Yeah, like, and, and you know, again, this is all about the worldly pleasures. As as this priest who has been infected by passion, essentially by by sensation, mm-hmm. and now he can't fucking get enough. And as he's you know fucking Taiju and you know biting her and she's into that and all that stuff like it is and and particularly the licking of the feet it's this like he is suddenly diving headfirst into carnal sensation there's a a moment later where he just licks up her armpit yeah and it's just him like he, he he wants to devour her and not in the in the literal monstrous sense but he just wants to, you know, consume her flesh uh, as, as as a carnal being. Yeah, he, want, he wants being. to experience it all. He want, yeah, he, he's fully in the moment. Um, it reminds me, like in some respects, it reminds me of the kind of decadence of something like Ken Russell's The Devils. You know, where like shit just oh, sure. yeah, shit just gets off the chain real fucking quick. You know, people are doing things that you didn't think you could do with the human body. Um, I, it kind of goes down that road, and I think what works really well. It, you could do the, this scene in any movie, and it just would be terrible. Um, and what works here is like one you've already like noted. It's very artistically shot. It's very, very tastefully done. The chemistry of the two performers is incredible. Um, they just they're fully invested in what would be, I would imagine, a very awkward scene to film. Um, and you would not know for looking at it. Yeah, it's it's really impressive uh, on a number of levels, like on a technical level, and also like you said, it's just it's just steamy. This is a steamy movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people fucking in it, <laughs> and <laughs> and to that end, as speaking of the carnality, you know, like with all the armpit and feet licking, you know, he licked her asshole. <laughs> We didn't see it on camera, but you know that happened. <laughs> yep. And and she licked his. Like, they are into it. Everything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, while she, he's, you know, sucking her feet, she's doing her level best to suck the skin off his fingers. And, oh, it's the best. Yep. Uh, it's a really passionate love story that ends well for everyone. Um <laughs> Duncan brought it up in the interview, so we may as well dig into the weird and wonderful history of vampire lore in Asia, the abridged version. Ironically, Japan has no native vampire folklore, and the first appearance of true vampires in Japanese culture didn't happen until around 1956 with the release of Kyukitsuki Ga, which featured the telltale vampiric fang marks, but it turned out the killer was just a regular guy. The same director of that film, Nobuo Nakagawa, returned with Ona Kyukitsuki, and this time the vampire was completely legitimate and bloodthirsty. Hammer-produced horror movies had a huge influence on Japanese films, like Chiisu Ningyo, or Night of the Vampire, and Chiosu Mei, known as Lake of Dracula in the West. While Japan may have been home to carpet-bagging undead, the rest of Asia had plenty of homegrown ghouls. Let's look at India, where we have the Buta or Pret, 
which wanders around night after night, animating dead bodies and attacking the living. In northern India, the Brahmarakshasa might hunt you down with its head encircled by intestines and a skull from which it will drink your blood. In the Philippines, Malaysia, Cambodia, and Indonesia, you can find one of a pair of vampire-like creatures, the Mandurugo and the Mananangal. The Mandurugo takes the form of an attractive girl by day, but at night develops wings and a long, hollow tongue, not unlike the proboscis of a moth, with which it devours the fetuses of pregnant mothers. If no fetuses are around, they will eat the heart, liver, and entrails of a victim. Oh, and also phlegm. Gross. The Menanangal, on the other hand, is a bit older a woman, still beautiful, but severs itself in half to fly around and eat up said fetuses. Now, if you've ever seen Mystics in Bali, which you kinda should, you may already be familiar with the next contestant, the Pinangalan, who will be old or young, still beautiful, but retains her looks through the use of powerful black magic. The head of the Pinangalan will detach itself and float around, looking for blood or, once again, the preferred meal, unborn babies. The only way known to prevent these attacks is by hanging juruju, or thistles, on the windows in hopes that the brambles will catch the intestines dangling from the floating head and essentially disembowel the Pinangalan. The next comes by different names. Pontianak, Kuntilanak, or Matianak in Indonesia, a Lingsur in Malaysia, but in all cases, this is a creature who is a woman who has died in childbirth and comes back intent on revenge. She is, again, described as attractive, with long black hair that covers a hole in the back of her neck from which she feeds on the blood of children. If you want to get rid of one of these Lingsurs, your best bet is to fill that neck hole with her own hair. Or do some preventative maintenance and take the corpse of a dead mother and fill her mouth with beads, put an egg under each armpit, and push needles into her palms. Common sense, people. In Cambodia, you'll find the Ab, which is also an attractive woman who detaches her head, but in search of the sweet meats of animals, living or dead. They're actually afraid of people and will only pursue one if the human shows fear. Some even get married and terrify their husbands. They generally are territorial and will hunt in the same areas along the same paths. But let's get to some leaping. The Jingxi, which are the most commonly seen form of Asian vampires in cinema, are generally believed to be reanimated via magic. See, the preference is that when you die, you get buried in your hometown. If a family member dies outside the borders of their home, the family may hire a wizard to go to the body, write a spell on a slip of paper containing the body's name, date of birth, and hometown, much like it was signing up for Twitter, as well as the text of a spell to reanimate the body. Once reanimated, it follows mindlessly behind the wizard in large floating leaps. If the wizard doesn't get paid or an accident occurs, the paper containing the corpse's personal details and the spell gets removed and an evil consciousness takes home in the formerly mindless body. The Jingxi now feeds on the qi, or spirit energy, of others. You can identify Jingxi by their curved, talon-like nails, the greenish-white skin, both of which are also characteristics of actual decomposing bodies, 
And the fact that, of course, they are leaping around strangely. In films like 1985's Mr. Vampire, directed by Ricky Lau, and The Wild Rigor Mortis from 2013, directed by Jono Mack, there is an interesting fusion of East and West, and modern directors seem to have co-opted much of the Western style of vampire with just enough local flavor to make it feel different. Sing Hyun in Thirst displays characteristics of the Jiangxi, but also borrows from Western tropes as well, creating something familiar and yet wholly unique. But enough vampire primer. Put those thistles on the windows, kids, and let's get back to Thirst. After after this fucking goes down and Sing Yun because again he's never this is he was a virgin up until now. Mm-hmm. And so it's like she invented sex for him. So he is just like, let's get married. We should probably have some kids. <laughs> uh and so but he in the spirit of of the moment confesses that he's a vampire. Yeah. And Taiju freaks out and, and and just splits and runs away. And he tracks her down and he tries to kind of take her away. Like she gets back to her house and he tries to steal her away from there. And then Lady Ra wakes up and kind of roundabout saves her. But then Taiju is like, wait a second. Do I need saving from a sexy vampire really? Mm-hmm. And so she decides, like, hey, uh, how about we we test some stuff out? Like, can you? are you really strong? Can you jump around? And then he ends up taking her in arm and leaping from building to building with her in his arms. And the, uh, there was a review I read of this movie that compared it to the Margot Kidder Christopher Reeve scene yep. in Superman. Mm-hmm. Except this is better than that. Yep. Because there's not that stupid, can you read my mind thing happening. <laughs> it's just Taiju looking like a child mm. as she's going high into the air and back down again. Now, now let's, I, let's put things in perspective. 2009, we would have had Twilight by now. I want to see. How dare you mention that movie? Well, there's a show. reason I mentioned that movie is that there is in the first Twilight movie an almost identical scene, and it's shit. <laughs> there is no wonder. There is no like genuine, genuine sort of human reaction to the fact that you are you are being moved at speeds that don't make sense uh, defying gravity which you know is real because you live on this planet um, and seeing things that are, are you know against the very fabric of nature as you know it and there's no reaction at all um, from the Kirsten Stewart character and then you see this and you see exactly how it should be how anyone would be if they are picked up and then the person picking them up is is leaping and floating between uh, stationary objects in a way which just is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you um, and that's why I mention it this movie comes out I want to say it's the same year I I, I, I obviously don't want to Google Twilight on my computer because I don't want to get like IMDb aids, um, which is a real thing. Um, 
but yeah, it is. I think it's about the same year. If it's not, as Twilight is two thousand eight. Yeah, so there you go. This is Thursday's two thousand. This is the year after, so they essentially replicate an almost identical scene, but make it good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but do it right. Yeah, do, do it right. There we go. Take yeah, that Hollywood. Yeah, it's, but it's so good, man. And, and rightfully, like once they're done hopping around. Uh, that's I'm I I feel like I'm diminishing how good the scene is <laughs> by, by calling it hopping, hopping around. Yeah, hopping there. Boing boing. <laughs> right, everybody's <laughs> hopping around, Duncan. Um, what? But what happens is as soon as they kind of settle back to Earth, immediately she's like, "So when can I be a vampire?" Yeah, because this seems rocking, and Taiju like being a vampire very much. Yes. Um, uh, almost as much as Mahjong, wink, wink. <laughs> and so I think he's talking know, about sex, listeners. <laughs> I think he's talking yeah. about sex. Doing it, you know, it. It so, it work. Yep, I understand. Switch the computer off and switch it on again. Problem solved. Got a ball. Well, well done. <laughs> Shit, I lost the recording now. Um. <laughs> But all right. So also, as they're they're fooling around and they're post coital post hopping uh, glow, mm-hmm. um, he sees all these wounds on her inner thigh. Yeah, and that's where this movie suddenly becomes body heat. <laughs> A movie that myself and Bo have discussed on Duncan and Bo Come Correct. Ting. Yep. So yeah, check that show out, listeners. So, yeah, so she's like, yeah, 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 uh, uh, you know, he doesn't beat me much. And Sing Hyun's like, look, I will vampire all over his ass if you want me to. They mostly come out at night, mostly. Right, she she is newt. (laughs) She is grown-up sexy newt. Um, (laughs) but, but, she goes back home. And Kang Wu is hanging out being just a worthless piece of shit as usual. Mm-hmm. But then he sees the wounds on her thigh. And instead of saying, hey, those look good. How about I make some more? He's like, where'd you get those? Yeah. And she's like, oh, at the hospital. And he's like, you should stop hanging out there. That place is gross and gives you gross thighs. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, meanwhile, to get back to Sing Hyun and, uh, his, the father, uh, Ro dude, um, he is, as you mentioned, wanted, uh, Sing Hyun to be a doctor so he could cure his blindness. And so now this guy, uh, is like, Hey, Sing Hyun, now that you're a vampire, why don't you make me a vampire too? And that'll cure my blindness. How about you do that for me? How about you throw something a little rose way? Mm-hmm. And is like, I, I can't do that. And renounces him and the church, essentially. is like, I am no longer a priest. So we move from that to uh, Lady Ra padlocking the bedroom door from the outside. So she can keep Taiju from sleepwalking, a.k.a. running around on the streets at night like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. And so 
she decides uh, she's uh, trying to get out and bang it around and stuff, and she ends up hurting herself. And Singyun actually hears it, and so they devise a plot, Duncan, that is part Godfather Two. <laughs> In part body heat. <laughs> Where? <laughs> it, it's, it's a real Fredo moment. They they take <laughs> King Wu. It's King Wu, uh, Sing Yun, and, and uh, Taiji. Yep. Take a boat out on this lake or reservoir or something that you're not supposed to fish in, but they know like the chief of police who comes to their mahjong games, and he kind of looks the other way for him. Mm-hmm. So they're out out here, assumedly fishing, and there are poles in the water. In fairness, but they are out here for one reason, one reason only, and that is so that they can Fredo King Wu. Yeah, they're they're, they're trying to pull a Highlander boat. Also a Highlander. <laughs> Feel foolish now for not using that. <laughs> and so Kang Wu goes, uh, it, you know, Sing Yun basically gets uh, Kang Wu into the water and dives in after him and, and uh, essentially drowns him. Mm-hmm. But in this process, the, the, fishing rod that he was holding when he goes in the drink as we call it in nautical terms <laughs> step away from episodes of the terror <laughs> never Duncan honestly listeners don't understand how consumed you are but I literally asked me if I was ready to board the podcast <laughs> welcome aboard Duncan it's me Jared Hess <laughs> did you bring rum <laughs> My father drank gin. I'll never drink it. <laughs> Come back from the brink. Come back from the Sorry. Brink. Oh, that so good. Uh, he actually does say that. My father drank gin. I'll never drink gin. Oh, <laughs> god damn, that show's good. Anyway, um, what the fuck's going on in this vampire movie? Yes, yeah, uh, the, the, the this vampire movie. Yeah, I'm going to slap you for saying that. It just like dismissed it. To oh, the lower rungs of vampires. The, the fishing, <laughs> right. the fishing hook, unfortunately, gets stuck in Taiju's ear. Well, not for long, no, because <laughs> it rips right through her yeah. ear, which com- comes into play here in a, in a minute. <laughs> King Wu is now drowned. Um, Sing Sing Hyun emerges from the water finally, and when he sees the bleeding ear, he sucks on that for a little bit. There's a lot of slurping in this movie as well. Like when people drink blood, there's a lot of. <laughs> if that doesn't turn you on, listeners, I don't know what will. Yeah, it was right in my ear. Um... <laughs> Did you like it? I, 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 I lady never tells me. Um... <laughs> All right, fair enough. And so after this goes down, he goes back to the priest because now he is no longer an innocent. He is murdered. Yeah. He has straight up killed the husband of his lover. Uh, much like William Hurt in a film called Body. <laughs> so, so he goes back to Father Rowe uh, and is like, you know what? I'll make you a vampire, I guess. 
And instead what he does is he stabs him in the heart with like a corkscrew and then bleeds him out from his heart hole. Yep. And uh, so he has now murdered not once but twice. Like now he's embraced it. Yeah, if you're going to renounce your faith and the church, you might as well kill a priest. Yeah, right. So, you know what I mean? It's, that's a that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the kind of work base termination of contract seen as taking a a shit in your boss's top drawer. Yep, the upper deck. Yeah, of, that, uh, <laughs> Operation Parton Gift. Uh, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> Operation Christmas bonus. <laughs> so yeah. Like, yeah, but I, I, what I love about the scene is that he he builds the father's anticipation for it. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give you what you want. Just, get, you know, I, I want you to, you know, um, I, I never remember what the religious term is for when they get absolution, is it? Absolution. Uh, so he asks for absolution. And as he's, once again, another phenomenal scene of just blood pissing everywhere. As he's getting absolution he starts to vomit blood from his eyes um, and it's going everywhere and you know Father Rowe feels the, the wet sticky substance and goes oh well this is blood he goes to try and lick it and as he's bringing his fingers up that's when Sang Yoon stops his hand and he's so tantalisingly close to getting what he wants and then he takes out a Swiss army knife pulls it to the corkscrew which he then pulls out into a needle and then straight up Robocops him. You know, you're not a Robocop. Well, right in his chest. Um, and, uh, yeah, drinks from the hole. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like, every moment where vampire shit is going down, um, like, it, it's all great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's subtle. It Like, none of it is overbearing. But it all feels just right as well. Um, so, all right. We leave uh, Sang-yeon on his uh, murderous rampage. And we go to Lady Ra. And, uh, or, well, all right. Worth saying, Taiju uh, is starting to have visions of King Wu. Yeah, but specifically because I think Sang Young tells the priest as well that he has this haunting image of I think it was underwater there was a maybe a sunken tim. Yeah, that he he put a rock on top of a door. King Wu. Yeah. yeah, on top of like a cabinet or something. Yeah, and this is under the Yeah, water. this is impressive. and his fear is that you know the the stone is moved away once again. Biblical images, ball. Biblical images, um, and the, the stone is moved away, thus releasing a a, a vengeful Kang Wu, um, which is where the biblical images stop. Uh, a bit unless unless you believe Jesus is like the Terminator. I don't know. Some people do. Um, you know that that he he's haunted by this idea of this stone moving and and Kang Wu returning from his watery grave. Um, and it turns out that I don't know, Taiju may, may be having similar thoughts uh, very much like the Telltale Heartbow their, their actions are now starting to haunt their existence and where they should be doing a whole hell of a lot of fucking spirit free um, 
maybe guilt is manifesting in the shape of a Kangwoo apparition. Yeah, he literally comes between them. It's the best it, scene ever. <laughs> it, it's the best it, scene ever. Because <laughs> it's, the, it's just the best scene because she's lying on her back. He is naked and thrusting away. And in between them on their side, Kangwoo is sitting there smiling. <laughs> yeah. As he is yeah. dry humped. <laughs> It's fucking it's pretty awesome. amazing. It's awesome. And then there's a scene right after it of them lying in bed on opposite sides of the bed as far apart as possible because lying between them with a stone on his chest, this symbolic barrier of guilt separating the two from having the, the life they thought they should have is, uh, is once again Kang Wu. The- yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it's a thing that... It, because... I, I wanted to say subtlety is really not Chanwick Park's thing. That's not true. Mm-hmm. It's just that in this case, he's just like, yeah, let's just literally have him in the instead of trying to communicate this idea that this deed they have done, this murder they have committed, has come between them. He literally puts him between. Them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's phenomenal. It's, the, the, what I love about this as well is we were talking about the kind of visual aspects of. Of uh, you know his his cinema in general is a very powerful visual eye, but the color scheme to the movie is completely changed at this point. So now it has this kind of what you would imagine the the color scheme of a, a sunken ship. Everything's yeah. dark brown, kind of yeah. mossy greens. Um, everything is wet, like everywhere you look, everything is wet and dripping. Um, uh, yeah, it has this kind of sunken galleon sort of colour scheme, um, which then kind of takes over their guilt. It's manifested in the guilt as well, and the rooms they're in, and the actions they do, and it's fucking amazing. Speaking of fucking amazing, let's discuss for two quick seconds here the return of the shears in the mouth bit. Which, yeah, is that this, yeah, if you thought the previous one was slightly un, you know, unnerving, maybe slightly terrifying, then, yeah, they go full in as he pins her down, obviously in her mind, um, and she is opening and closing her mouth as he is viciously and very quickly thrusting while maniacally laughing these shears in her mouth. Right. Once again, dripping wet, snot yeah. coming oh. down his, his face. It it is. It's one of those shutter level disturbing images for oh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yes, uh, definitely. <laughs> it's it's really unsettling. And in the midst of all this, Lady Rod, now that her son has gone missing, has had a stroke. Yeah, she hit the booze a bit hard, bro. Yeah, and also when Sing Yun showed up, she clearly had flipped her lid a bit yeah. and thought that he was King Wu, and then, you know, thing, things uh, go bad. And so she is now basically an, uh, an incommunicative invalid. Yeah, she's she's got locked-in syndrome, basically. Yes. She, the brain is kind of working or is working well, but she can't manif- manifest anything at all in terms of actions or movements out with her eyes. And, yeah, it, I mean, I, I just can't imagine a worse fate. But, mm. so, 
So well, the worst fate would be being locked in and being trapped in a house with a girl who you have physically and mentally abused for years. <laughs> well, this is true because that'll come into play here in a second. Let's get to Taiju fucking the, her, her uh, friend's husband for a second. Mm-hmm. Where we just cut to a scene kind of at, well, I mean, we've seen throughout this sequence that they're not having sex because of this thing that's literally come between them. And so she ends up, uh, she, like, we just cut to her fucking this guy, and then it looks bored, completely not into it, is just doing it. And the guy's like, How can you have sex five times like that? And she's just like, whatever. And then takes off. And it's like, it's really this moment where she's totally reached this bottom mm. and runs into Sang Yun uh, on her way home and he sniffs her out. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't say anything, but it's pretty clear. It's like, I understand what's happening here. Yeah. You have the, the, the scent of. What's that? Someone else's semen. Interesting. Interesting. It's kind of it's on the air. I can almost kind of. It's kind of the air's kind of salty. Yeah, that's that's what's happened here, isn't it? Did you fuck? Did, did you fuck my my friend's wife? Did you fuck my friend's wife? Did you fuck my friend's wife? Did you? Yes, I fucked your friend's wife. I am your friend's wife. <laughs> I'm your friend's wife. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you want to talk about the most depressing birthday party ever, Duncan? I, I always like to discuss depressing birthday parties because I live in Scotland and that's the only way we celebrate birthdays, as in a depressing fashion. Well, you'd fit right in because it's Lady Ra's birthday yep. that a post-five-peter, five post-coital Taiju and Sing Yun, who now understands that his human lover is uh, maybe off the skids a bit. Yeah, just a tad. They're having this birthday party where Taiju is a little bit drunk and is trying to like force feed Lady Raj. It, it, it's sort of a Leo situation almost. You might want to stress for, li- for listeners of this show that don't know that. that is your thing. That's... Um, Leo from from uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Duncan and I did uh, a, a, a very long conversation about that. <laughs> very, very, very long conversation. Some would say it's never finished, and it continues on and on uh, in perpetuity. They say that <laughs> they sing about it in the hills. Um, but yeah, so there. Uh, finally, Taiju just hauls off and smacks Lady Ra. Yep. And then Sengyan is like, what are you doing? Why are you treating her like that? And then he smacks her. Mm-hmm. And Taiju is getting a little bratty in, in this whole scene and then starts giggling. It's like, hey, are you going to have a birthday party for me? I don't know when my birthday is. And he's like, yeah, I'll throw you a birthday party or something. Just how about we all calm down and have a good time here? And so as they're dancing around a bit more, she leans into his ear and whispers, King Wu never hit me. And 
I think this is the point where Sing Yun is like, I gotta get out of here <laughs> to some degree. He like at this point picks up Lady Raw and carries her and her chair because uh, he's got vampire strength mm-hmm. into another room, and th- so they start arguing a bit more, and finally, uh, Taiju goes to Lady Raw and confesses the murder. And says, uh, you know, like, he's this monster. He killed your son. Please forgive me. And it, once again, Sing Yun is just kind of sitting there taking all of this. Mm-hmm. And things get a little heated. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a slight understatement. But yeah, that's... It escalates quickly, Bo. Sing Yun ends up as uh, they, they start arguing. Like, uh... Taiju says, "Like I, w- I want to go to my husband. You know, if you're if you're this monster, and and like it's a real bipolar kind of thing. Because th- keep in mind, this is all her idea, mm-hmm. but suddenly she's playing the victim and is saying, I yes, I want to join my husband and kill me.' And so Sengyun does. Yeah, but she's one would assume she is playing him like the proverbial fiddle." Very possibly, she is a a clever little minx, Duncan. Mm-hmm. And he ends up uh, having a time of it uh, because wounds keep healing. But he starts feeding his blood to her after he has, uh, has killed mm-hmm. her. And then he starts making out with her as she starts to come around. And now, uh, and it, it ends with him saying, "This is today is your birthday." Yeah, and it, which is great. It, it's a great moment, and one would think they are going to live happily ever after. She has what uh, she wants. Uh, he has what he wants. They make a perfect couple. And uh, what could go wrong? Because Taiju certainly is nothing if not stable. Yeah, you, you kind of think that this may have the... Uh, this may be a kiss of the dam sort of scenario, where, you know, this couple are... You know, they, they know what they're doing. They'll live a life which is modest and, you know, secretive, and maybe they won't interact in such a way to bring attention down on their heads, because you wouldn't want to do that if you are a vampire. Not a good idea. No. Um, so Taiju gets into the spirit of things pretty quickly. Yeah. So she, she parks in another great moment in this movie. Like they have to feed Lady Rob by pinching her nose with essentially a medical grade paper clip or not paper clip, but clothes, uh, clip mm-hmm. and, and putting mush in her mouth so that she'll swallow it. And so uh, Taiju feeds Lady Ra, turns her around in front of the television, and says, "Watch this. I think a scary movie's coming on." No, no, that forces shoes on her as well. Oh right, yeah, because she says that they're gonna like Americans. They're they're gonna wear shoes in their houses. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the, it's the small things, boys. The small things that I love about this movie. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. So. Taiju then jumps out uh, to a, a street where she is waiting for an innocent passerby 
when an in- innocent passerby comes it's along. She jumps. Yeah, this is fucking great. <laughs> she jumps in front of her car and gets hit all the shit. <laughs> she gets launched about ten feet in the air and right along the road. And of course, this poor guy's like, "Oh fuck!" So he gets it. His car and runs across that, and um, she has devised her way of extracting blood, which just so happens to have two points, like a vampire's fangs. Gotta love this movie. Gotta love this movie. And so shears. Well, she, yeah, she's using her handy dandy shears and plunges them into this dude's neck. And when he starts bleeding, she drinks it up. There is one of my favorite moments in the movie following this after she, you know, drains this guy where she's digging his grave. Oh yeah, it's super speed. That's amazing. It's, it's super speed and the dirt just goes flying. Uh it's it's really it's a fun. It's wonderfully composed shot as well. Just like the the, the visuals, the you know the it's an incredible is it like as a single set piece. Um it's phenomenal. And the, once again it's this well this movie does really really well as it plays with with tone. So there is something inherently comical about this scene, even though she is, you know, brutally drained, an innocent man, and about to bury him. So, um, you know, I, the, the movie's playful. It's very, it's a very playful movie, but in particular, this scene is just very. It's a joy to watch. Yeah, it, it's really, really fun, and and she also steals his car, uh, which is kind of insult to injury, mm-hmm. and then. She runs back in, or meets back up with Sing-Hyun, who's like, hey, where have you been? And then he immediately smells that she's been uh, feeding. Yep. And he's like, I told you I would take care of the blood. I can get the blood from the uh, the hospital. And she's like, I don't want the hospital blood. And he's like, well, I'm doing this other thing now where I go to people who want to die. And I help them commit suicide in a peaceful way. And then, in turn, I take their blood. And she's like, fuck that. I am not, I am not living my life drinking your bottled blood. I am digging being a vampire and I'm going to vampire it up. And so she tries to get away and then there's a big hoppy chasing on the rooftops again. That's real fun. Well, yeah, where she, where she thinks she's getting away and she tries to jump over a particular building and he is there, grabs her foot and she swings down, smacking her head off the side of a building. <laughs> kind of amazing. It's great. It, well, and so as he's holding her uh, over, like like you said, he smacks her head and, and is holding her by the foot and is like, you know, I don't make me regret doing this. And she says, you know, save me or kill me. You're going to regret it either way. And then he drops her. And, but of course she's a vampire. So it doesn't, it doesn't kill her or anything. It's just there. It's sort of a, Hey, like we've got to live together. So let's try to do this in a way that makes some kind of sense. And, Taiju, in the spirit of things, immediately paints uh, most of the apartment or house that they're in totally white yeah. and puts fluorescence everywhere so that it's like sunlight. And this is where it it makes its last shift in tone from like body heat, noirish kind of thing to just kind of a straight up monster movie at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, think Which, that's, I think that's fair. Though I think we've transitioned through it, and at this point, we 
inevitably will end up here. And I think what I quite a, what I like about it and appreciate about it is the movie understands that and just gives you that. Yeah, and it, so we now understand that because uh, Seng Yun gave his blood to uh, Taiju, she also has this Emmanuel virus. Mm-hmm. So she's in the same predicament he's in, which is she has no choice. She's got to drink blood. And he he initially says, like, hey, I'm going to... When she starts throwing up blood, he's like, I'm going to go get a doctor for you. Maybe, uh, you know, again, a little bit of double entendre. Yep. <laughs> uh, because the doctor he gets is their buddies. It's the, uh, the doctor that she was fucking and his wife. Yeah, plus we get this gnarly scene where she has projectile vom of blood across yeah. this very sterile white floor. Um, and it's just this beautiful visual um, that, that we get, because it's like an aerial shot of her leaning over, and then this fountain, Evil Dead-esque fountain of red blood just sprays right across the floor. Um and it, it plays a clever shot as well because while he goes away, we see her kind of look across um, at, at Mrs. Ra and she kind of licks her lips and then you think to yourself, is she going to feed on that old woman? Is she going yeah. to do it? Um, so the doctor comes in to help uh, and it turns out the doctor is of help, but not the way the doctor thought he was going to be of help, though. Yeah, well, they they are reduced to playing Mahjong again. And it's like they're having kind of a party night. And it's, you know, Lady Ra and this couple and uh, Seng Hyun and Tai Ju. And uh, I think the police chief is there as well, who's the other guy that they know. And while they're having this dinner and playing Mahjong, uh, Lady Ra starts happen with her finger and there and Taiju is like oh isn't that adorable you've gained a means of communication how cute <laughs> and as the scene progresses it, it's kind of this roundabout game of charades where Lady Ra implicates Taiju and uh, Seng Hyun in Kang Wu's murder mm-hmm. And everyone in the room, there's this great moment where after the real, after that revelation, when everybody there just looks at Taiju and Seng Yun, and the record playing ends and the needle picks up, mm-hmm. and it's this moment of like, oh, <laughs> what's about to go down here? And uh, what's about to go down here is uh, pure mayhem and chaos. Yeah, mostly mostly not led by Sang Yun, though. Yeah, well, again, Taiju has come into her own and is down to party. Like, she is the kind of person that's referring to them as humans Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Like, she is full-on vampire. And so she goes after the uh the wife meanwhile sang hyun stores the doctor for later yep then uh sang hyun decides he's going to become uh i think your term is a sex pest <laughs> well, <okay>. very well done 
I love it when you lower yourself to my level. <laughs> I do what I can, but it's it, like it, it's the it's the bottom for Sang Yun, you know. Like he has helped murder their former friends. Yeah. Uh, he has fed on them, and now he's he's just gonna go uh, be a maniac and and expose himself to someone in a tent. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, the the like they work their way through that entire house, like, and then he. What I love about the end of this movie is that, in principle, we kind of know where it's going, but because we are in the hands of an author, you know, filmmaker and storyteller. He really plays with the end of this movie so much so that we have a good 15 minutes of him packing up the car. So we have Sangyo in the car, we have a, a we have Mrs. Ryan, we have Taiju as well in the car, and we drive out to you know the middle of nowhere really. And Taiju is very much aware that you know that they are close to sunrise, and it's not. It's not enough that you know Sang Young wants to commit suicide, essentially, to, to end his existence. But he also wants to end the myth of him being someone who is revered by people. So when we talk about him becoming a bit of a sex pest, he goes specifically to the camp of people that are camped out to worship him. Right. in the monastery, and he sexually assaults one of the women in the tent in a way where it is loud enough that everyone will hear and everyone will see, everyone will be repulsed, and they will break their faith in him. I think yeah, he, he is very consciously, very self-consciously becoming an iconoclast. Exactly. Right? And... So, yeah, he drives after truly devastating his own reputation, letting the world sort of know, at the very least, what he thinks of himself. Mm -hmm. And he drives uh, Lady Ra and Taiju out to, like, the edge of this cliff, kind of, and breaks the key off in the ignition. And uh, Taiju was asleep and then wakes up and is like, where the fuck are we and it's almost sunrise what are you doing and so she climbs into the back of the truck oh, i love these scenes it's, it's so much fun it's so playful of taiju trying to work out exactly what she can do to survive the oncoming sun um uh, yeah she she well, throws everything out the back to hide in the book or the trunk sorry trunk american trunk um yeah. and he's like nope so he just tears the entire lid off the trunk and then she's like no I want to go back in so she can and of course because they're super strong that this means nothing to them so she lifts it back up puts it over then he kind of lifts it off again there's a bit of a struggle which results in and there's a scene where once again credit to this man for, for giving you visuals that just unnerve you when he's first trying to get rid of the hood of the car, the trunk lid of the car, um, she pins him down and individually snaps all of his fingers back. And it is a phenomenal visual effect because if I didn't know better, she snapped his fingers back. 
Yeah, I, I wonder if he's double jointed or something. Must That's... be, must be, because the, the, you visibly see them pop back. Um, and it's one of the best visual effects in the movie, a movie which has incredible visual effects. So, Well, and, and the lead up to that is like, okay, so he lifts the, the uh, you know, roof off the hood boot. <laughs> and um, you okay there? the hood off the boot. Yeah. And I have a little stroke of my own there. And <laughs> then uh, as he's walking away with it, she does a vampire leap to kick him down to begin with. And it's like, fucking Taiju has this down, son. She would have made an awesome evil vampire. Mm. Which, of course, is why she must be yeah, destroyed. Yes, exactly why she must be destroyed. <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, he, he flings it into the sea far, far away. And that's the point where she's like, I, I think I'm fucked. And then there's this great moment where... um he he gives a cell phone to Lady Ra and like dials a number and it's like all you've got to do is depress your finger yeah. and you will call for help. And then uh, he has to move the car she because dug under. <laughs> fucking Taiju digs a hole under the car and is, is camped out there, so he has to get the car out of the way. And then finally, it, it, it's almost kind of wordless. They just accept what's about to come. Yeah. And, you know, she he puts on the, uh, the old shoes that he gave her when he caught her running for the first time. And um, they watch the sun come up. And, and Sing-Yun is, is very romantic in this moment. It's like, you know, I wanted to live with you uh, forever. And then he says, together in hell, then. And uh, Taiju, who does not believe in heaven, just says, when you're dead, you're dead. It's been fun, father. Mm -hmm. And they fucking roast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... What do you want from a movie, ladies and gentlemen? That's the question I ask. Yeah, that, that's how you, that, ladies and gents. That's how you close a film. And it's not even that though. It's the fact that it's quite touching and burn. But the final shot is of the 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 shoes, you know, falling to the ground, uh, and that's the last shot you get. Um, and it's kind of fucking amazing and it's very artistic and it's very poignant and it's just fucking rad it yeah this whole movie is truly exceptional for a number of reasons the performances are mm-hmm. amazing it looks gorgeous mm-hmm. it's got great music mm-hmm. it's three acts are so distinct they're essentially three short films with the same characters yeah. And all of it somehow comes off. And it is, there are a dozen moments throughout the movie where you're going to be kind of gobsmacked for a second, whether it's the, uh, him hopping around with her on the roof when she's delighting in that, or even just the, the scene of him laying on his back, sucking on that blood tube is one of the more striking images. Or what about snotty ghosts trying to get it on with this couple? Mm-hmm. It's all 
great. Well, well, not even to mention the fact that this movie is two hours, 15 minutes long and flies in. I mean, the, the pacing yeah, in this it, movie is excellent and it's not a rushed movie. It feels rushed. I'll tell you what I love about this is that for a movie, if I said to you, vampire movie, uh, which is going to chart a man being turned into a vampire, a relationship which is going to be throttled, so to speak, and then by the end, you know, the ultimate demise of of that relationship by death. Uh, it's two hours and 15 minutes long. How long, Bo, um, would your standard filmmaker take to make the vampire? Uh, are, are you talking like the first act, yeah. essentially? Oh, you do, yeah, you do it in like the first 10, 15 yeah. minutes. That's how you do it. And what I love about um, uh, you know, uh, Chanwick Park is that the whole conceit of him being done with the tainted blood is done within 10 minutes. And then we get this really... You know, we know something. So we know from the name of the fucking movie that this is about vampires. Then the movie breathes in itself in a really fun, playful way where he's getting all these different things at him. It kind of reminds me of American Werewolf in London, in a lot of respects to do with its pacing about the you know the the transformation into the wolf and how it really breathes into that. And then you get that iconic scene, which is right from this point onwards, you are a wolf. You know what I mean? And um. This movie kind of does the same. It builds, it, it builds, really breathes into the idea that he is a vampire to the point that we we've said like where all his senses light up like a Christmas tree, and he has realised that you know right, I'm a vampire now. You know, all these little things have happened, but now I know. Um, and that takes about, I mean, up to that point, takes about half an hour, maybe thirty five minutes. Um, and the movie just has a really good idea of how to fill its time without trying to do too much or do too little to keep you interested, to give you beautiful visuals, to have an active camera working, to give you true shots of horror, which this movie really leans into, which is important when speaking about uh, Chamwick Park and the horror genre in general because he's a... Uh, a, you know, a filmmaker who flirts and plays and skirts around with that genre to a huge deal without actually fully ever committing, you know, to right. This is my horror movie. It's well, this is my this is my movie, and if that journey on that movie takes you to some elements that make you feel uncomfortable, that scare you, or that you would classify as horror, that's brilliant. But first and foremost, it's my movie, um, and I just find that so fucking fascinating. It is a, a movie which shouldn't work at the length that it is, but it totally works because of the length that it is. Um, and you, well, and it's constantly shifting, though. It's not, it's not, yes, it's one story, but it shifts in tone, it shifts in direction. You know, at first, uh, the, the through line of the movie is the descent of Sang yeah. Young. Like the, it's sort of the Breaking Bad thing of like he's real awesome, and then he realizes what a whore he's become and has to destroy yeah. himself. And both, both, both and, Breaking Bad and First have a character who is locked in, so to speak, and can only move their finger to communicate. Well oh done. my god! Yeah, yeah. that was an impact. Must have been probably, uh, probably surely. Was. But uh, let's let's pretend I, it was. Yeah, We're please. looking at you, Vince. And really, I really like. <laughs> 
I, I really like Thirst. <laughs> it was your biggest influence in Breaking Bad. You guys may have heard of this guy, uh, Park Chan-wook. He did this movie called Thirst. It's about vampires. It was, it was Thirst and Weekend at Bernie's <laughs> 2. <laughs> See, if he said that, I would shit myself. <laughs> I, we watched both of those every weekend while we were doing the show. <laughs> Uh-huh. Cranston's a big weekend at Birdie's too fun. Oh sure, he loves it. The Cran <laughs> Man, Cran sure. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> we're almost at the end. Yeah, Don't ruin so... it now. So, uh, Duncan, if you enjoyed yes. this movie, uh, the jury prize uh, at the 2009 Cannes Film. Can Film Festival agrees. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a well-received movie. Uh, I think that it is uh, beautiful, as we've said. It's artful. The title itself is a double entendre, both, you know, Thirst of the Vampire and the Thirst of the yep. Flesh. And it is sexy. It is violent. It is uh, strangely energetic and silly at times I, I i don't know what else to say about this movie other than it is a, for me a seminal film i, I think all I, I think all of chanwick park's movies are kind of that yeah. way you know it's like if once you say everyone should see stoker it's not it not for this show but if you've never seen it you should see stoker you should absolutely see uh the Handmaiden, which is a... Oh, The Handmaiden's phenomenal. Right. Like, the guy is getting better, not worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I, w- I would agree with that. I think uh, as his career moves on, he's, like, genuinely... I think we... T- to put people in perspective, we spoke about Stoker on podcasts under the stairs, like, back in 2014. Um, and obviously, Handmaiden movie until The Handmaiden. And as soon as... As soon as I saw the trailer for that, I remember sending it to you, and you'd already seen it. We, I think, we must have spent the best part of half a day on on messenger messaging backwards and forwards, just talking about how fucking pumped we were that we were getting a you know a Chanwick Park movie out um, that year. We just couldn't, we could not wait to see it because that's how exciting a filmmaker is. He can take several years off in between his movies and does now, um, and comes back more interesting than a better filmmaker for it. It's, it, it it's just, I think he's a tour de force. I think he exists in his own little bubble um, of, of filmmakers from that continent. I think there's a lot of really interesting voices out there, but there's only one Chan Partwick, so there you go. Yeah, it... He's. It, it's sort of like when the Coen Brothers release a movie. It's like, oh yeah, yeah well, I'm going to see that. Obviously, <laughs> like I, I, I can't not see it. Uh, everything uh, he's done is good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it is. It, it, it's a wonderful movie. Any final thoughts, Duncan? Before I, I cut you loose and uh, in the show. Um. Just thank you again for having me on. I um would like to volunteer my return services for any future um, Chamwood Park movies that you cover. Um, 
And I, I just, just because I don't get enough opportunity to say these things on shows like this, um, I think Hero Hero Go Show is a fucking phenomenal show, and I applaud all the hard work you do in highlighting movies, which, yes, a lot of people will know Thirst. Uh, some people might not, but the fact that you also highlight movies that from time to time, even I'm sitting there going, that doesn't even sound like a movie. Uh, <laughs> sounds like Bo's made up that name. Um the the fact that you continue to do that and keep pushing the the interest in the sphere of interest into Asian horror cinema um, is something to be applauded. So thanks very much for having me on. Oh, thank you. That was that was lovely. Uh, you know what we're doing next? Oh, what are you doing next? Quite an. I've not seen that. It's quite good, sir. Um, I I recommend it. I'll, we'll talk about that later. I'll I'll get you. <laughs> And Russia. (laughs) Quiet and Yeah, and and folks, by all means check out tputzcast.com as well as Facebook.com forward slash groups forward forward slash tputzcast and what is it on Twitter, Duncan? Uh, at tputzcast. At tputzcast, all all the same. That's consistency I admire. Uh all right, thanks again, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Folks, that is going to do it for this episode of Hero Hero Go Show. Hope you had a good time. Hope you learned a little something. I know I did both of those things. Uh, big thanks again to Court Psyops and Duncan McLeish for joining me to talk about both of these films. Um, next month, of course, we will be discussing uh, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster uh, for uh, the G-Spot as well as talking a little quiet Anne with our pal Danny Bennett. Also, uh, look for another Whispering Quarters bonus episode sooner rather than later. And uh, and I think that's going to do it. As always, you can find me on the Twitter at, at Bo in Tennessee, Tennessee abbreviated TN, B-O-I-N-T-N, uh, is where I am on Twitter. You can find me over there. You can also find me over on uh, the Facebook at Legion Podcasts. And, uh, of course, the website, legionpodcasts.com, where this show and many others can be found. So, uh, folks, if you would, I would genuinely appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review of this here show. Um, you know, we're trying to grow and, and get people to listen. And, and I believe, perhaps wrongly, that there is not enough focus on Asian horror and the horror podcasting community. And uh, so I feel like what we're doing here is uh, kind of special. So if you tend to agree, uh, hop over on the the iTunes and and let someone know. Just takes a, a couple of minutes out of your day, and, and we certainly appreciate it. So, um, folks, that's going to do it. Thank you one last time. And now to end our show with a little style, I give you Panorama Panama Town. Sí
やみんなは巻き込みな